Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Paul Matsko. And joining us today is Jason Kuznicki. He's a Cato Research Fellow, editor of Cato Press, editor of Cato Unbound, and author of the book Technology and the End of Authority, What is Government For? Welcome back to the show, Jason. Hi. What is the state? That is a really good question. The classic definition of the state comes from Max Weber, the uh, eminent sociologist who defined the state as the agency which has a monopoly on the legitimate use of force within a given geographic area. And uh, this proves to be a pretty libertarian compatible definition of the state, one that libertarians can at least work with if they are not uh, entirely committed to it. And uh, generally where we differ with his definition of the state is uh, on the matter of legitimacy. Uh, many of us would question some or even all of the things that states are said to do legitimately. How does that differ from the nation state? So typically I know nation state is a more modern construct. So what? Where, where's the slippage there between nation state and the state? When you add in the word nation, you add in a different set of considerations. A nation is not an institution. A nation is a group of people. And generally, my go-to definition of a nation comes from Benedict Anderson, who uh, termed a nation an imagined community. A nation is a group of people who understands themselves to be experiencing the course of history together. And that can be an ethnicity. It can be a group of people with a shared language, although it isn't necessarily so. The Swiss are a nation, but they have several different languages. And yet they nonetheless think of themselves as having common values and a common uh, sort of trajectory that they are all embarked on together. Versus and like the French where – Francophone, this is very core to their kind of nation state identity. Right, right. Yeah. right. And that's something that varies from one nation to another. And yet the, uh, the sense of nationhood can be equally strong in either case. So a nation state is a state that either does or attempts to act as the single state for an entire nation. Then – to, I mean, when we're on the subject of distinctions between terms, um, what's the difference between the state and government? So, uh, state is, as I said, it's a unitary agency. It's a it's a single thing, and this is not something that we have always seen throughout history. Weber's essay, in which he introduces the idea of of the state as a uh, monopoly on legitimate use of force was specifically in reference to modern states. Prior to the modern era, there were a lot of different governmental authorities, uh, different agencies which had to varying degrees competing claims to authority within a given geographic area. So in Renaissance France, for example, you would have the king, but the king was fairly weak. The king was not yet an absolute monarch. There were various levels of nobility. There were the parlement, which were very influential and powerful law courts. There were bishops and archbishops who also had significant temporal authority. There were a lot of different competing power centers. And uh, while you can speak of the French state at this time, speaking about the government 
that someone experiences will lead you into uh, this sort of array of different competing power structures. You could be subject to lots of different governmental authorities sometimes when those authorities themselves were formally at war with one another. Sure. Then, well, so I, sometimes one of the things you hear libertarians or anarchists um, will say something along the lines of they they oppose the state, but the absence of the state is not the absence of government. That that like say political anarchism would not be an ungoverned thing. So is that what is? So that seems slightly different than the way that you're using this distinction. I think that's fair to say. I I, I would say that. Uh, what libertarians do best to oppose is not necessarily either the state or government, but coercion, because coercion can be entirely private. I could blackmail my neighbor or I could uh, simply break into his house when he wasn't around and take his stuff, and that would be wrong of me, and that's something libertarians like anyone ought to oppose, but uh, it's not government and it's not the state. Your book is divided into two parts. Um, and the so the first part is getting a handle on kind of the historical development of justifications for the state from a from political philosophy standpoint. And then the second part kind of looks forward from, you know, like as things are changing, where do we go from there? Um, so let's let's start a bit with that that first part of the book. Um, how historically has the state from a political standpoint, from a political philosophy standpoint, been justified and how has that evolved over time? All right. One of the one of the things that prompted me to write this book was the idea that political philosophers often claim to see very clearly that there was some purpose to having a government and to governing and that it was often to bring the mundane, ordinary world into some kind of greater harmony or some kind of greater correspondence with either the divine or with a uh, plan that they could see very clearly and thanks to their greater vision, they would bring the plan to uh, mirror society and society would thereby be improved. And uh, sometimes these plans were uh, utterly fantastic. Uh, there are schemes of uh, government that are based on astrology and on numerology and on all sorts of uh, either mystical or uh, uh, often quite fanciful plans. And I began to ask myself, well, how is it that people found this credible? What is it that prompts so much in the way of, of utopian or even fantastic political theorizing, not just from cranks, but from people who are uh, quite respected philosophers? And the uh, primary example of this, the most important example of this is Plato, who explicitly premised the government in the Republic on an idea of uh, a numerological breeding system by which people would be induced to mate with the appropriate mate for them to produce the right kind of child. And this is how the system would perpetuate itself, which is, is frankly bizarre. Uh, but then you know, how does this come to be? Why is it that people 
first of all, write this and second, find it credible and propagate it. And that was uh, that was one of the animating questions of, of the whole book. And I suppose y- y- there are th- there are, are reasons for the adoption of ideas of the state that are no less ludicrous in the abstract, but that seem less just because of our familiarity with them. So, I mean, there, there's no particular reason why the divine right of kings in 17th century France is any less ludicrous or, or, or bizarre a system of, of justifying the existence of the state. We're just familiar with it. So it seems less odd than Plato's, you know, astrological mating system. Right. Well, Thomas Paine really did uh, put the uh, final nail in the coffin of that with his his uh, comparison of the divine right of kings and then uh, primogeniture to, uh, well, he asked, you wouldn't trust the son of your doctor or your tailor <laughs> simply because they were the oldest son of the doctor or the tailor you you had had previously. What makes you think that the oldest son of a king would be anything like the best administrator for the state? Uh, the defenders of absolutism, though, did make a fairly good point when they said, at least this system is stable. At least it has that going for it. And then we don't have to fight one another over who can be the ruler. So sure, it's arbitrary, but it's arbitrarily stable. It's arbitrary, (laughs) but if we all coordinate on it, then maybe it will be better than what had gone before. And the example they had in mind was the Roman emperor, which was uh, sometimes heritable. Now, you could become emperor because your dad was emperor, uh, but then other times it was not. Sometimes it was sold to the highest bidder. Sometimes it was the guy who managed to kill all of his rivals. And uh, nobody wanted that anymore. People thought there had to be a better way and this is what they settled on. So this this metaphor kind of the state is there's this divine or natural order to the universe, to things that we ought to be following or will follow or whatever. Um, and the state plays a role in – Making that happen or in providing the framework for it or instituting it somehow um, is how does that – so that that kind of theory of the state as, as part of the natural order shift or does it shift as we move into increasingly democratic theories of the state, which are – I mean democracy is – if anything – unordered by by almost by de- – you're just kind of throwing it out to the group of people and what you get is what you get, which is very different from a divine monarch. So how do, does that does that metaphor carry through or does it evolve or does it get abandoned? I think it depends on which, uh, which political philosopher you consult. Locke, for example, John Locke does not agree that there is some sort of transcendent plan that the state is implicated in or is trying to achieve. For him, the state is something that exists because we are uh, bad at judging our own case. And this is something that I I must say I differ slightly from some libertarians in my interpretation of Locke. Uh, Locke did believe that protecting private property was absolutely important, no question about that. But this is not something that he thought could not be done without the state. He did believe that even in a state of nature, individuals would protect their private property. But he thought they would probably do it way too enthusiastically and way too partially. When you are a judge in your own case, you tend to rule in favor of yourself. 
And so, he said, we institute states so that no man could be a judge in their own case. Uh, it's not to protect private property. Private property will be protected. It's to protect private property impartially that we have a state. And so this is a very mundane, very uh, sort of prosaic justification for the state. So if you ask Locke about uh, what kind of state there is, he's not on board with the divine plan, not whatsoever. However, fast forward to the time of Hegel and Hegel absolutely believed that the state was an instantiation of a divine plan. He believed that states were on earth to work out some sort of ineffable truth and the way that they would do this was through violent conflict with one another. And uh, perhaps that could be through de democracy or, or it could be leading us to democracy. There have been Hegelians who have thought that, but it didn't have to be. Uh, the result of the violent conflict, whatever emerges at the end, that was the truth. And uh, if you don't yet know what that is, well, that's because we haven't yet reached the end of history. It, that's, uh, I mean, usually the gloss on the Hegelian dialectic is all very abstract. It's like ideas come into conflict and we get a, a, this, this thesis and eventually get a synthesis, right? But like when we literally frame it as the conflict is literal between, you know, political systems. Yeah, it's a little less. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Hegelian dialectic was a process that played out in a lot of different realms of, of human experience. For Hegel, that's, it's a psychological conflict. It's a conflict within an individual. It's a uh, conflict that has religious or spiritual dimensions and it also has – it has political dimensions and in the political dimensions, that's warfare. It's yeah. Yeah. violent conflict. Philosophers, political philosophers from, from the beginning um, have – I mean they're, they're working in these – they're building these systems. They're, they're advancing these theories but they're also – people and participants in these cultures and societies and sometimes states um, and so they're 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 bound up in everything that's they're, they're human beings with human psychologies and all of that and you talk a bit about like how that plays out or what that might mean um, for what they're doing and one of the questions that I think is interesting to explore is so the history of political philosophy going back to say the ancient Greeks is almost always the history of state maximalism. Yes. That, that we want we want big states that do lots of stuff that are usually centrally controlled and and we're not arguing that from the perspective of economists talking about what's going to lead to the most efficiencies um, or political scientists talking about what works. But we're just – this is like grand theorizing of what the ideal situation might be typically. Um, why, why is it that so many of these guys and they're almost always guys are drawn to that kind of thing as opposed to us – in the wilderness libertarians advancing our theories of like maybe not guys like maybe it could just be kind of small and not all that expansive and kind of weak this is one of the big questions that i try to answer in the second part of the book and i think there are several reasons for it first i think it's really satisfying to write and to read about proposed solutions to all social problems 
when you read something in that kind of utopian maximalist vein, it feels really good, at least to a lot of people. I mean, libertarians have this cultivated sense of horror about it, uh, which I think is properly cultivated. But uh, lots of people can be drawn even to really very badly constructed utopias simply because they promise that all of the problems that they're now having will go away. That feels fantastic. A second reason is that for much of human history, you have to ask the question, who wants to read political theory? It's not the vast majority of people. It's certainly not the ordinary peasant who can't read anything. It is princes and courtiers who want to read about how politics is done. And they naturally reward those who flatter their own vanity. They naturally want to think the very best of themselves. And so the works that are commissioned, the works that are preserved, the works that are talked about more tend to be in that maximalist vein for exactly that reason. On this point, um, and I, I buy this kind of structural connection. There's a reason why Machiavelli is writing things that are favorable to his patrons. And, and you can go down the list of famous, you know, early modern and prior uh, political philosophers and find those connections. They're writing for an audience of one or, or a handful. Um, so I buy the argument, but I guess the, 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 the question I had as, as reading, as I was reading that section was, well, what's the counter pressure? I mean, and you, you gave an illustration of this with religious freedom. So you have, um, uh, philosophers calling for early ideas of religious toleration at first, and then which eventually evolves into kind of a more robust sense of religious freedom. But if the nature of the of the philosophers is to want to um, accommodate those in power, like what pushes back against that? Like why do we have any freedom from the state at all now? Like what what's pushing against that kind of state maximalist trend? Why are we free in religion? Why are why is the state not all encompassing today? Well, there are, there are a lot of uh, counter pressures which have, I think, grown gradually throughout uh, at least Western history. And the earliest one is the church itself, which wanted to be a countervailing uh, power. It wanted to exercise its own uh, government, if you will, over people. And this meant questioning the power of monarchs. It meant establishing the idea of an impartial uh, court system and right and wrong and uh, something above the state standing in judgment over it. And uh, far from being a, a perfect instantiation of justice, it was though a competing power center and that gives you more options to choose from. It gives you a different perspective. It gives you the ability to stand apart from the state a little bit and say there are laws higher than state laws, which is a good start. Uh, any critique of the state has to begin with something that's able to have that kind of moral authority. It has to. And I would say also then as uh, as material culture developed and as there were more and more people who were literate and middle class, there is a greater demand for works that criticize the state or that don't necessarily accept – all of the flattery and obsequiousness of the earlier, of the earlier types of, of political philosophy. Uh, whatever skeptics there may have been in the ancient world as as to political power, and there were some, uh, 
they're nothing compared to the skeptics that you start to see in the Enlightenment where you begin to see people who say, well, what if we didn't have a state? By the time of the Enlightenment, there are people who are well aware that not all societies have had states, that it might be possible to do without them. And they're starting to ask questions. And that's a, a remarkable development. And I think it's only really possible when there is the kind of uh, audience that will support it. So that story is about political philosophy kind of tracking non-political philosophy trends and following. So basically, they're writing for the available audience, which all authors do to some degree or another. You know, you want your book to sell. Um, but the how much was there like kind of in the other direction of so these guys are writing all these theories, but how much influence are they really having? Like, so they can they can write their grand thing about how the state is you know glorious and the king should have all the power he's got, but. Are people paying attention? Are they having an influence? Are they actually changing things or are they just kind of writing like what become the forgotten pop albums of their era <laughs> that are really only remembered by us nerdy weirdos who decide we want to read this stuff hundreds of years later? I suppose it's fair to ask the amount of influence that specific thinkers had in their own time in part because uh, – Princes were happy to exercise arbitrary authority even without that type of justification. Uh, that said, I I would have to say that there does seem to be some influence here. There does seem to be some idea that philosophy justifies government, that uh, there are appeals made to, to political philosophy uh, to, uh, to justify what has been done when – when uh, the uh, Bolshevik revolution occurred, it wasn't simply that they wanted to exercise more authority. It was that they sincerely believed that Marxist ideas were right and they were going to try to implement them. And I'm not sure how one gets to that without there having been Marx in the first place. In your research for the book, when you're you know so you're studying all of these justifications, I mean, we talked about how like so Plato has this weird um, mating numerology of at, at the core of his. What's the weirdest one that you came across, or like the most delightfully out there? Well, okay, I have I have a big section about Tommaso Campanella. Uh, he's a Renaissance Neoplatonist astrologer and political theorist, and he has a, a book called uh, "The City of the Sun," in which his utopia is explicitly modeled on astrology, and uh, his city is divided into districts that correspond to the planets, and the uh, rulers all also have sort of astrological titles and functions and all of it is is based on the stars. And so there's a sort of map that you can draw as you read it that looks like what the heavens looked like in his day. And that to me is sort of like the apotheosis of of that type of that type of philosophizing. Uh Reviewers hated that section and they thought, oh, he's not that consequential. You know, Campanella is – nobody reads him. I was assigned Campanella as an undergrad and it was it was really quite formative for me, not not in a positive sense, not like I, I went out and you know, supported him. But 
uh, I thought to myself, even back then, I thought, there are people who found this plausible and that is astonishing. There's a, one of the, the – I mean I think it's still fairly standard practice in most like uh, grad history seminars is to read uh, um, The Cheese and the Worms um, about an Italian miller who gets swept up in the Inquisition. Carla Ginsburg is that? Ginsburg's book, yeah. And so he has this whole idea of cosmology based on his observations of how uh, cheese putrefies and worms form. Yes. And like – but clearly, like the the similarities between what you're talking about and what like just an ordinary guy, the early bourgeoisie. I mean, I he's like a Miller. I think he, it's it's a Miller. Um, so he's literate. He's thinking about things and ideas and and how you structure the world around you, society, and it's all based on. I mean, there's an astrological element. Like this was this was normal for people to think like this. And we don't think like this anymore today, or at least not in quite the same way. We're not consciously structuring our society around the seven, idea of seven heavens and medieval cosmology. But like it was ordinary and normal for them. It was a very ordinary move at the time to to believe that what is above is like what is below and that there's a correspondence or that maybe there should be. So cheese and worms – uh, teach us an important lesson about the nature of life or the stars teach us an important lesson about government or even uh, if, you get, if you get a headache, if you get a headache, uh, what do you use to cure the headache? Well, you use walnuts. Why? Because the outside of a walnut is round and on the inside there's a thing that looks like a brain. It's weekly, and, yeah. and it's a lot like uh, – <laughs> Uh, this is this is this was real. This was sincerely believed. Uh, this is part of an intellectual tendency that was pervasive in the Renaissance. Uh, Michel Foucault writes about this in his book *The Order of Things*, where uh, he examines these types of correspondences and how uh, it belong. These they all belong to they all belong to a system of thought or a type of thought that is not so common anymore. Nowadays, when we want to analyze something. We use math. We add up empirical instances of things happening one way or the other under a treatment condition or a control condition and we perform statistical tests on them and that's how we reach what we consider to be the best stab at truth. I think that way works better. I'm not, uh, I'm not an anarchist about scientific method, if you will, but it is something to keep in mind in the history of ideas that these uh, these you know, this mirror of what is above is like what is below was a very very common way to think. Well, there's also this. I mean, this is a, a Deirdre McCloskey point um, to make, which I mean, I'm trying to remember the the title of her essay, but she basically says empirical knowledge isn't as empirical as we think it is. There's there's a there could be a garbage in garbage out problem. We create our little models. And then we say that what those produce is true with a capital T and everything in the humanities is not true in the same sense, right? Like we've changed. So, so everything in, this, in my book is absolutely true. <laughs> that's right. Everything in your book is absolutely true. But I mean, I, I wonder to what extent we, we create our little models. We do run our little tests. We come up with data and we think we've achieved maybe the, the, the gap between what, uh, you know, Ginsburg's Miller learned from the cheese and the worms and the val what we've learned from our our data modeling might not be as wide as we like to think. Oh sure, sure. I mean, there are things we don't know even about relatively mundane aspects of life. Sure, uh, one of the heroes of my book is is actually David Hume, who has this uh, fantastic quote about how we have only 
a few thousand years of experience with government and that's not nearly enough to know what a good government actually looks like. And uh, this was tremendously contrarian in his day and it remains somewhat so now. But I think it ought to be taken seriously that maybe we don't know as much as we think we know about this fantastically complex process known as society. This so the fact that all these people or a lot of these people had these really weird ideas, um, and either those weird ideas were the entire crux of their theory, or they were at least ideas in the background that were influential in all sorts of ways. So outside of I think to use the phrase that you use like there's the the intellectual historian's core concern. Um, the re I mean to an the question that intellectual historians exist to answer is the question you raised, which is. How did anyone ever find this thing plausible, right? Like it's just a series of asking that sort of question. But but for the non-intellectual historians, then, given how weird these guys are, and and given how much we kind of have moved on, what's the value in them? What's the value in reading Plato or these astrologers or these theories that we think are wrong and are based on assumptions that we no longer accept? I think the value is that it can show us the ways in which we are apt to fail. And while we may not subscribe to the specific doctrines of these old thinkers, we might make similar errors. Uh, we ought to recognize that human beings like things to be tied up neatly and to all work out well and there are no loose ends and someone's in charge and everything's safe and everything's going to be okay. We would love to have that be true. And we ought to therefore mistrust any time someone says that it's going to be that way because we know from the history of, of thought that rarely does it work out that way and usually when someone comes along promising something like that, it turns out to be a nightmare. Let's move on then to the the second portion of the book, which is your positive theory of the state and where we're going and whatnot. Um, you develop what you call so there'd been this this metaphor of like the state as as so the, the kind of the divine thing, the natural order, the so on. Uh, you you instead advance what you call the bundle theory of the state, of trying to figure out what this thing is. So what does it mean to call the state a bundle? So uh, lots of different purposes to the state have been advanced. You know, the state should do this or should do that and uh, the state must do this, the state must do that. Many of them though are not compatible with one another and so it becomes very difficult when you look at those sort of first order aims of the state to find anything unifying at all. And what seems to uh, unite all theories of the state are not the goals that the state seeks to pursue, but the means by which the state pursues its goals. The means by which the state pursues goals is inevitably coercion. And so this is the thing that the state is about. And, and again, it harkens back to, to Weber. But uh, what's remarkable about it is that it really can be put to almost any end at all. You can coerce people to make them live in astrologically designated neighborhoods if you want or to uh, instantiate the Marxist idea of, of uh, collective ownership of the means of production or, or who knows what. 
And uh, so what we get from this is uh, the possibility of taking things out of the bundle gradually and thoughtfully, if you will. But maybe it's not necessary at all to use that means of coercion. Maybe maybe we could have a, a society in which that just was not resorted to. Uh, it's not clear to me that we have a definitive answer one way or another on, on that specific question. But recognizing that when we have turned a matter over to the state, we are therefore using coercion to solve it is something that we ought to give great thought to. We ought to, we ought to treat that as a, a very uh, serious step and as one that is uh, at least potentially morally suspect because of the fact that coercion is itself morally suspect. I like this, the um, interplay between this idea of states as a, as bundles of things the state does. And you can, and the general trend, at least in American history, is to put more and more things in the bundle. So like we're going to now put primary and secondary education boop, in the bundle. Yes. We're going to put firefighting boop, in yep. the bundle. Yep. So it's been a, a bundling process uh, towards greater and greater bundling. Um, but the unbundling process as – I mean, there's like a technological component to it. Like there are new thing, new technologies in both the, the like the material sense and in the more abstract sense that we can use to unbundle some of these services. But a lot of it seems to be a failure of imagination. And this, so the interplay between this idea of bundles, like so you have to get people to imagine that a thing can be taken out of a bundle, that something besides the state can provide it. That's like a key step to unbundling. This interacting with the Benedict Anderson imagined communities thing, this idea of the state as a thing that exists in our minds. That we as a nation have directed the state as an institution to yeah. perform these tasks. Uh, and by virtue of that fact itself, we could choose the other way in yeah. the future. Yeah. I mean, it's just striking me to the extent like rather than thinking of the state, I think it's easy for a kind of vulgar understanding of the state as tanks – and police officers as things, tangible things that we have to start with the state as, a, as an imagined organization. I mean, imagine a community and then the bundles of things it provides is just a, a starts off as a function of what we imagine it can or should do. It's a it's a group of people and we have tasked them with doing certain things by this specific distinctive method. Yeah. And the specific distinctive method is coercion and we should be very, very clear that there's nothing glamorous about that. There's nothing divine or majestic about it. It's something we ought to be embarrassed to resort to. Whenever we turn something over to the state to perform or to do, we ought to say, well, this really feels like a failure, not like a success because we have been thrown back on this very primitive method of solving problems. It's not a good method of solving problems to hurt people. It's not a good method of solving problems to put them in cages. We ought to view that as a defeat rather than a victory. Well, I think we should be clear like good good can be interpreted in a couple of ways in in that statement. Like good in the sense of it's it's an effective or the best way of solving the problem. And in that case it might be a good well, yes, one, but, but even, good as a moralized term. Even having to lock up a mass murderer is still unfortunate. It's still too bad that you had to. Uh, this does not settle the question of whether the state is necessary or not. It should, though, 
be the attitude that we bring to state action, that it is regrettable in all cases. Is so if coercion is kind of the defining characteristic of the state, I mean there are other there are other relationships in our lives that can have coercion play into them. So you could parents and children is an example of I mean don't spank your kids, but like parents do it and that is a application of violence to achieve an ends, but but the family's not the state. So is it does this kind of mean that there's no there there anymore if it's just coercion or is there anything that like makes still gives the state some sort of identity beyond that that distinguishes it from say the family or other areas where we might find coercion in our lives like is the mugger who shows up suddenly a state no no uh the mugger is not generally viewed as having acted legitimately that's, so it's the legitimate that's... coercion that's the difference there. And where I might say if I were an anarchist, I might say all states are illegitimate. That's a distinctly minority opinion. And even private violence in a state-having society is generally either explicitly or implicitly permitted by the state. So a state that takes no position on parents spanking their children is effectively legitimizing that violence. A state that says you should not spank your children and that will be prosecuted as child abuse, that has declared this type of violence to be not legitimate anymore. Can anything go in the bundle? Why not? So there's no there's no limit. We could just shove any action we want in there as long as it's somehow backed up by coercion. By a socially legitimized type of coercion. Okay. Um, so then, so then, going forward, like part of the this ends up making it like so. Now, now the question. So there's the question of state necessity that gets that was kind of a core part of political philosophy for a long time. Like the, the state needs to exist and it needs to do these things and it needs to have these features. And but you you now have basically taken that's not the question we're dealing with now. No, no, the question we should be talking about. Instead, what we should simply be doing is kind of looking at each of the things in this bundle and saying, is it okay? Is this particular application okay? Does it really need Does to it be work? in the bundle? Or Does it need to be? Can it? we get rid of it? And so the state becomes just kind of like it, – it ends up looking like – who is it? Marie Kondo? The, this thing that everyone's into of just like decluttering, <laughs> like you, you basically this is like the Marie Kondo approach to political philosophy. Of uh, just pick up each thing and like, does it bring me, does it bring thing? me joy? Yes or no? I did not know who Marie Kondo was when I wrote this book, but that's a pretty good. It's a pretty good uh, analogy. Yeah, we yeah, should put that so. on the slogan: Jason Kuznicki, the Marie Kondo of political well, we, philosophy. We get her to blurb the second edition <laughs> yeah, of the book. <laughs> I I do say at one point that the state is a dumping ground for the leftovers and the unsettled problems and the things that we don't know what to do with. And we use coercion on those types of things. But generally, if we have a better solution, we prefer it. I mean, we prefer non-coercive methods, or at least we should. Is it? I mean, so as we unbundle things, as we take things out of out of the state's remit, um, there isn't there the, always going to be the problem of getting people to exercise those kind of cultural imaginary I don't know muscles once again so like if for a long time I haven't had to worry about my relationship 
with my next door neighbor because the state says it defines where the property line is. Um, it, it defines how we can disagree about the use of our, our mutual, like, I don't know, sidewalk and, and, you know, a curb access and the like. And suddenly the state says, Oh, we say we, we get, we get the power to take this out of the bundle. That's not in the bundle anymore. Like that's, that's a hard thing to train people to do, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, uh, even for fairly hardcore libertarians who still aren't quite anarchists, adjudicating property disputes is a legitimate function of the state. Uh, that's that's not really in question so much. But uh, some things are, are very easy to say, well, no, that doesn't belong in the bundle. How much should there be a subsidy for tobacco farmers? Well, there shouldn't be. Yeah, that's right. something we can just throw out of the bundle right away, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there are there are some things that there's low hanging easier, fruit. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Easier or harder. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I think I mean technology plays a role here too, um, and especially the way that technology, when it moves quickly, when innovation happens fast, often happens faster than the state can do anything about it. And so we can, I mean, so it's it's one thing to say like, hey, give up states settling property disputes and you're like, well, what's going what's gonna to replace it? But it's another thing when like something comes along, some innovation comes along, like private binding arbitration and some people start using it and you can be – you can be like, oh, that's kind of a weird thing that those people are doing but I'm glad I'm still doing my thing. But then they seem to be happy with it or or like you know, we really need – we need the only way to get from point A to point B in a stranger's car is if you have this strongly regulated system with medallions making sure that everyone's legit and so on. Um, but then some strange people in coastal enclaves start doing this privatized Uber thing and now they seem to like it. And so I'll give it a try. Like it's technology and innovation kind of gives us the opportunity to see what this stuff might look like in practice before having to commit to it. Yeah, I mean that's that's I think a, a key uh, determinant of how readily people would be willing to try non-state solutions for a lot of different potential problems. Yes, and so that's where you think you think technology. Then, I mean, are we we like in an acceleration point now in terms of the potential for slowly stripping away the bundle? I would love it if that were true. Uh, it's very much a question, though. Uh, how those technologies are deployed because as as technologies of surveillance grow and grow as well, it may be that the state gets the upper hand. We've seen past historical eras that went from relatively free to less free because of improved technologies. And the example I would give there is that uh, improved military technology from – the medieval era into the Renaissance led to much stronger states and eventually to absolute monarchy, in part because the individual, whoever it was in a given area who could put together the most effective army ended up being uh, the one who was uh, in effect uh, the center of power. So where medieval French kings are very, very weak. By the time of Louis XIV, they are anything but weak. And the reason why is because the state was better able to raise money and troops and uh, build fortifications and the like. Or it seems like it's it's hard to have a hugely expansive interventionist administrative state if you don't have the technology for data gathering and record. Exactly. Yeah. 
so you have to, you know, you have to force everyone to have surnames. It's one of the first steps of the, you know, you used to be called John the Miller. You're now John Miller and all your children after you're going to be called John Miller. Right? Even centuries after any of you were involved in that trade. Yes. <laughs> right, right, right. But that, I mean, the surname is a technology. It's it a, is. It's it a is. This is a, a point made by uh, James C. Scott in, in Seeing Like a State that the reason we have these names is because states gave them to us to make it easier to find us and to tax us. You use a term in the book, agnorist? To anarchist and oh yeah yes anarchist anarchist to describe yourself. Um, what is that? I mean, it's it's not a term most of us have heard of. No, and it's not no, the most it's, euphonic it's, term. It's not. Uh, but what I mean by that is that I don't know whether Utopia has a state or not, and I'm not prepared to say anything about it. I've never been to Utopia, and. It might be that the coercion that is found in the state is actually preferable to the other forms of coercion that would exist without it. And if that's the case, then we should want a state. And if it is possible to do without the state and still minimize freelance coercion in in ways that leave it clearly uh, – less harmful than state coercion, then we should do without a state. But uh, this is a question that is very difficult to answer because it's uh, referencing a situation that none of us have ever seen. And frankly, it strikes me as a little bit presumptuous for a theorist to say affirmatively, yes, there must be a state or no, there must not be. So it's agnostic anarchist. Exactly. Okay. It's okay. agnostic plus anarchist. I'm agnostic about that possibility. And I, I don't think that we need to have a firm answer about that uh, to do useful work in political theory or, or policy analysis for that matter. At the end of your book, you, you have an interesting chapter about trade. And because – so one of the things – and we libertarians often – you know, lament the, the fact of this is that the state ends up being this central metaphor of what a society is. That a, a society is that thing that kind of exists in and around a particular state, um, and this has all sorts of damaging effects because, it, I mean, it, it, like in everyday stuff, it's like, well, if you're criticizing the state, like if if you're attacking the federal government, it must mean that you hate America and that means you hate Americans and you can't do that. And like so it has it has these like really negative interplay with patriotism and so on. And but but the state as a bundle doesn't really, you know, it makes it harder to have that be if it's just this kind of bundle of things that are happening, it's harder to construct a metaphor of society around that. And so as an alternative, you propose trade. Which is going to be um, maybe upsetting to some people on now the American right and far American left, but like, how does how do we how do we think of trade as the central metaphor of a society as opposed to just something people do? Uh, well, the reason I was led to this was twofold. First, it was in reaction to Hegel and uh, Hegel's argument that uh, in effect everyone really wills the existence of the state regardless of what they may say about it. Uh, he argues at one point that even if you profess to be an anarchist, if you love your family or your religion or your fellow workers or whatever it might be, all of those things are sustained and underwritten and made possible by 
the state, and so therefore you love the state without realizing it. And this seems frankly preposterous to me, but uh, if it's not the state, then what is it? And one of the things that drew me to make this argument about trade is that trade seems to be an irrepressible feature of all human societies. In fact, it's a commonly found element even in animals. So you teach uh, – you can teach other primates to use tokens to exchange for goods and they take to it very readily. They're happy to do this. They develop very – uh, precise notions of right and wrong, of fairness and exchange very, very quickly. And when you engage in that type of behavior, whether you're a primate or a human, you are implicitly asserting the existence of property because to trade means that formerly you owned the property and you surrender your ownership in return for acquiring ownership over something else. Well, this happens all the time. This happens in in free societies. It happens in communist societies. There's a description that I include in the book about one of the indispensable workers in East German factories. They all tended to have a guy like this. He would buy up stocks of consumer goods that were non-perishable and just hide them in the factory. And when the factory needed something and some other factory had it, he would take the consumer goods to the other factory and trade for the things that, that his factory needed. And the reason that they were all badly supplied, of course, is because central planning is just that inefficient and doesn't work. And the workaround was trade. So uh, even, even in a communist society, trade is something that comes very naturally to people. It is very difficult to repress entirely. It is something that we all take to very, very naturally regardless of what our ideology may be. And uh, uh, it seems like it has a much fairer claim to my mind to be a central feature of society than than the state does. So would that mean then that that basically a society is the set of people we trade with? The set of people you potentially trade with or or – the set of people engaged in uh, a network of trade relations with one another. I think that seems seems like a reasonable way to put it. I mean, one of the roles that the metaphor of state, the state as the center, does is provides an identity. Like it, it you know, we we see this thing, so we want to be Americans, and we see this thing, whether it's you know a, a particular like the president or. All of these fancy faux Greek buildings that fill this city um, as as like America, you can you can kind of point to it and you can tell a story about it and it's you know um, trade is like the bundle theory is much more spread out than that. There's not like a thing you can point to and so can it play that kind of how. So it's one thing to say like definitionally a society is the set of people we might trade, we trade with, we might trade with our potential trading partners, so on. But it's another thing to have that function as kind of this metaphor of identity which seems to be a big part of the role of the state now and kind of societies and the nation and so on. Well, we are we are dealing in the level of metaphor here and the central state or the, the central uh, nature of the state 
is asserted to be such because it coordinates society. It it arranges the goals and the priorities of, of what should get done and uh, – or at least purports to do so. But trade does that as well. Trade is a coordinating activity. It coordinates resources by allocating them on the basis of, of uh, demand. And so uh, – I, I don't see that it necessarily fails. Uh, I, I think it actually it makes a lot of sense, even though it's decentralized, to say that because it plays that coordinating role, it can be spoken of metaphorically as being central. So there's the I mean, from the the Anderson Benedict Anderson imagined communities, we imagine part of that imagination is enabled by a set of myths and symbols. So Greek buildings, the White House, those are symbols. Uh, myths are the fat, the stories we tell about our founding and about the story of, of America. So like, but I can imagine creating a complementary set of myths and symbols around this system of organization trade. Sure. sure. We don't have that. We but... could do that. Yeah. I mean, even if we were nothing but immortal disembodied intelligences, we might still have a society. And what would we do in that society? We would exchange ideas. Uh, it seems like the uh, process of exchange is something that we have a hard time uh, separating from, from the idea of society. It seems like it's something that is intrinsic to society. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.